Well, this is a season of gift giving, and probably a lot of you have already bought gifts for that special person. Maybe you've been to a party and you've experienced some sort of gift exchange. I'm looking forward to this Thursday night. It's our uh, holiday party for our office staff. And as I was thinking about that party, I know one of the things we do is we give one another um, white elephant gifts, kind of funny gifts. And I thought, I I need to up my game. I mean, I need to do just a little bit better than maybe what I've done in the past. So I've been really thinking a lot about what my gift would be. And so I've, and maybe some of you will go uh, to one of those gift exchanges where you, you know, give a, a white elephant gift. And maybe you need maybe some ideas for a good gift. I've got some ideas for you. I've got two, a couple, two or three uh, that I brought up here uh, today that I want to share with you. I'm trying to decide which one I want to share first. I think, I'll, I think I'll share this one, this one first. Now, this is a, a Yeti. And I, uh, I received this Yeti uh, two or three years ago after I had done a wedding for a couple. Uh, did their wedding, and, and they presented me with this uh, Yeti. And, and I thought to myself, this is a spiritually-minded couple. I mean, this is a bright, brilliant, smart, wonderful couple. And, and they gave me this after the wedding. And on the front it says, best pastor ever. And, and I thought, boy, they're just, they're just something deep about this family. And, and I thought... You know, uh, I, could, I could give a Yeti, but these are kind of expensive. And so I, I wanted something a little less expensive, maybe more appropriate for a white elephant gift. So I, I thought about um, maybe a, a redneck Yeti. And uh, that's a picture of it right there. Just a, a couple of cans, and you tape on the word Yeti, put some water in it, and there you go. You got your Yeti. Now, some of you might want to, might want to exchange that. That's a, not, a bad, not a bad gift. But, but also I thought, now, you know, uh, you can't go wrong with, with a gift card, right? And, and at our party on Thursday night, we'll exchange gift cards. Several of us will get gift cards. But, but also money. Money is good. And so I, I thought maybe, maybe just some, some cold, hard cash. Cold, hard cash. This is a... $10 bill, if you're not quite as generous as me, you can give a $5 bill. And you put the $5 bill in, in some water and freeze it, and it is cold, hard cash. That's not a bad gift. But, you know, the gift that I, I thought about and I might give, although several staff persons are in our audience today, so I'm kind of blowing my surprise, but the other gift I thought could be, could be this exercise block. It's a block of wood. Number one, place block on floor. Two, walk around it twice. Three, sit down and relax. Congratulations, you've just walked around the block twice. That's not a bad gift, is it? Not a bad gift. Not a bad gift. Well, we're in this season of gift giving, and some of you are thinking about, you know, what you're going to give to that loved one. In this message series, we're looking at all these gifts that are given, all these gifts that are exchanged. And what we've said in our message series is that whatever it is we give God, have you noticed? He gives us something far greater. And so we give God our hurts, and God gives us healing. We give God our sin, and God gives us His own righteousness. We give God our life, and God gives us life with Him. Eternal life with Him. 
Well, this morning, as we continue looking at the narrative, uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today, we're going to see there are some, as, as Jeff has said, these mysterious figures, these mysterious characters who, who find the ch- Jesus, who's now a child, two years old, and as we will see as we work through our message this morning, they bring gifts. These are far greater gifts than I've talked about this morning. These are, are gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we'll talk a little bit about the significance of those gifts as we move through this message. So in Matthew chapter 2, we find that um, Matthew has a real interest in showing us exactly who Jesus is. We see that as we turn back one chapter to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. That is, he is from the lineage of King David. And while the book of Matthew has a very Jewish feel, it also has this universal appeal. Because not only is Jesus the son of David, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now we know about Abraham as we go back to Genesis chapter 12. This interesting character is introduced to us right there. And we know that Abraham is told, you leave everything that's familiar to you. And all nations of the world will be blessed through you. And now that finds culmination in Jesus. All nations can be blessed through Jesus. Jesus is son of David. He's the king. But he's also son of Abraham. The one through whom all people will be blessed. But not only is Matthew interested in showing us who Jesus is, when we come to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew has this real interest in showing us how we should respond to Jesus. And so in Matthew 2, after Jesus is born, during the time when Herod is king, these magi from the east come, and they ask this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. In just a moment, as I said, we'll talk a little bit about these magi, but let's first focus on some other responses to Jesus. And the first response is that of Herod. Now, as we see, if we read the text carefully, the Magi didn't actually come to Herod. They came to Jerusalem, and word begins to spread, and Herod finds out about these mysterious people from the east who've come looking for a king. And the text says that Herod's response to this news is that he is disturbed. Now, that's putting it mildly. Herod is greatly disturbed. You see, Herod is this person who is vicious. He is this person who who will not tolerate a rival king. He hears this news and so he he sends for his leaders and and asks them, these religious leaders, where's he going to be born? Where's this, this king? Where should he be born? And they very quickly tell him. Then he calls the Magi in and and he feigns interest in wanting to actually worship Jesus. But he has no interest in worshiping Jesus. Herod sees Jesus as a rival. And Herod will not tolerate that. That's one response to Jesus. There are some places in our world that see Jesus in this way. And as a result, they close churches, they jail preachers and Christians threaten their lives, Jesus is seen as a rival king who will not be tolerated. I think as the years pass, and as we enter into an increasingly post-Christian 
age. We're living during a time when maybe some of our religious liberties are being threatened and more and more is at stake. There's some who respond to Jesus in this way, but, but there's another response to Jesus. And if often as I read Matthew chapter 2, if I'm not careful, I miss this response, but it's the response of the people. You see, not only is Jesus, or rather is Herod disturbed at the birth of this rival king, but the people are also, it says, they are disturbed. We wonder, why are they disturbed? They're disturbed because of what it's creating in their, in their life. Have you heard this phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? And that's much how it was among the people at this time. Here's Herod. Herod is disturbed. Herod is agitated. He's wondering what's going to happen. He's wondering about this, this person who's, who claims to be king that other people seem to be acknowledging as king. He is the king of the Jews. And so he is agitated and disturbed, and so are the people. They're agitated and disturbed. These people were, in essence, saying, the people who lived in Jerusalem were saying, hope this doesn't cause me any trouble. And you know, some respond to the baby in this way. You may be content, especially this time of year, to have warm, sentimental feelings for this baby. Maybe you're the sort of person that loves Jesus in the manger. But Jesus grows up, and Jesus begins to teach, and the Lord begins to have a, a, mission, a mission and a ministry. And the truth is, if we take seriously what he tells us, he will disturb our lives. We love comfort. We love sameness. We like status quo. And yet Jesus, as he begins his ministry, he will begin to say some things that disturb the status quo. He'll be He'll begin to say some things that's hard for us to hear. Oh, I know we want to soften or generalize. Uh, We want to um, uh, do all sorts of things to not really hear the message of Jesus. We'll deflect it. But when he starts talking about dying to self and taking up a cross... When Jesus begins talking about forgiving even our enemies, when he starts talking about turning our cheeks and going second miles and welcoming strangers, then suddenly our lives become a little disturbed and we maybe are more like the people in Jerusalem than we care to admit. We want predictability, we want sameness, we want status quo, and yet what this baby brings, this child brings, he brings challenge and change. And the people in Jerusalem were starting to sense this. They're starting to feel it. But there's another response. When Herod hears about the baby, calls in the chief priests, calls in teachers, and he asks where this this baby was to be born. And these religious leaders, oh, they very quickly, they, they, they flip over to Micah chapter 2. They flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. They're familiar with the scriptures that point to Jesus, and they know exactly where Jesus is to be born. And they tell Herod. But here's the amazing thing to me. They don't ta- take the time to travel six miles to see if this baby was, in fact, the very Son of God. They knew the Scriptures. They had the right answers, but they were still spiritually blind. Brothers and sisters, we can know the right answers. We can be very familiar with the plot line of Scripture and still be spiritually blind or spiritually cold. 
they would not leave their place of security to travel a few miles to see if this was the Christ they should worship. And yet here the Magi. They're from the East. And as Jeff alluded, we, we're not certain who they were exactly. It could be they were from Persia or Babylon or maybe the Arabian Desert. They've traveled not, not six miles. They've traveled more like 600 miles to find this one. The one group that responds is the group that knew the least and traveled the farthest. To me, there are a couple of things that I find interesting about them. One is who they are. Older translations use the phrase wise men. Newer translations, literally, they will transliterate the Greek word magi. They'll make an English word out of it, and they become the magi. When you hear the word magi, there's some other English words that come to our mind. Words like magic or magician. They were kind of a a hodgepodge of astrologer, astronomer. They were pagans from the east. Maybe they were familiar with the biblical prophecies. We knew in 730 B.C. that uh, Hebrew thought had permeated the, the, that area we know as Persia. So the, maybe they heard about these prophecies of the Messiah. But understand, they're Gentiles. They're outsiders. It's ironic that the king of the Jews, Herod, is unaware where the true king of the Jews would be born. It's ironic that the people in Jerusalem were unaware, that the religious leaders were unaware. But here are these people who travel over 600 miles from the east, and they know, he's been, they know he has born, been born. Here's Matthew, this very Jewish writer, and he's treating these outsiders as the hero of the story. This really is quite shocking and scandalous. Here are these pagan, Gentile outsiders, and they're the first to show up at Jesus' birthday party. They're the first who embrace the gospel, the good news that God has entered the world, that the King has been born. They're outsiders who discover this first, not, not insiders. This is an incredible illustration of the grace and mercy of God. And this makes perfect sense when you think about it because when Jesus grows up and begins his ministry, who did he get most of his criticism from? He got criticism from the insiders. He got criticism from the religious elite. He got criticism from people who thought he was spending too much time with the wrong people. He's spending too much time with outsiders. That's what the insiders were saying. And friends, if we're not careful... We can develop the same perspective. We go so comfortable with how we do things and who we are and what we're about. And we start growing just a little uncomfortable when we start thinking too much about outsiders. And so the, what's interesting to me is who they are. But then the second interesting thing to me is what they do. What do they do? It says that they had come for one singular purpose. They'd come to worship him. Matthew's a good Jewish boy. And Matthew knows that worship is reserved for only one person, and that is God. They have come to worship. Worship's a big thing in Matthew chapter 2. It's mentioned three times, two times in reference in these 12 verses to these pagan outsiders. They've come with a singular purpose to worship God. 
to worship this child, to worship Jesus. And so Matthew's helping us to understand who this two-year-old, by this time, little boy is. This two-year-old little boy, this person who's playing at the feet of Mary, is none other than God come in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is the light of the world. He is the one who one day would go to the cross and die. You see, this time of year, it's, it's not an occasion for sentiment or mere admiration. No, the child is worthy of our adoration. And so the question we ask ourselves, have we come today to worship? Verse 11, it says, they bowed down and worshiped him. Now what's fascinating here is, though the religious did not know who Jesus was, the Magi certainly did. And before they gave him anything, they offered him some gifts. Before they gave him gifts, they gave him their heart. They bowed to worship. And then verse 11 says, they, after they bowed down to worship him, they opened up their, the treasury and they had three specific gifts. It says, then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't know. Did everyone know what those gifts were all about? Did Mary and Joseph understand the significance of this? I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Gold, the most precious metal, that was reserved for a king. And here's this little boy. He is the king of kings. Matthew wants us to understand that that's who Jesus is. And so the, the book of Matthew opens in chapter 2 with, with an understanding that Jesus is the king as they bring this gift of gold to him. The book concludes when Jesus is on a cross. And what do the Roman officials do to mock Jesus? They put a sign up there that says, King of the Jews! Though they were laughing at it, it was true. He is the king of kings. They give him gold, they give him frankincense. What is frankincense? It's this incense that priests were very familiar with. When a, someone became a priest, he was anointed with frankincense, a sweet-smelling incense. Frankincense would be used as they would offer sacrifices in the temple. It would be a sweet savor wafting up to God. Jesus is the King of kings, but Jesus is the priest. He is our great high priest. And he's at the right hand of God right now, making intercession for every one of us. But then they gave him the gift of myrrh. What is that? That would have been associated with death. You fast forward 30 years from this moment, and Jesus goes to a cross. And after he's crucified, spread eagle, and they drive the nails to his hands and feet. And finally, he breathes his last. He says, it is finished. He breathes his last. His head bows. Jesus is dead. And they take Jesus down from the cross, and a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea enters the story. We know Joseph because way back in John chapter 3, this was the Joseph who came who came to Jesus. Here's this one now, this Joseph of, 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 of Arimathea. He takes the body. And what does he do with the body? He takes it and he takes 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And they wrap the body. And they place the body in the tomb. Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is priest, high priest, and Jesus ultimately is our Savior who took our place 
on the cross. So my question this morning as we conclude is this. So how, in Matthew, I think, this text, I think, is, is really begging this question. is How will we respond to him? I doubt, I doubt there are those of us in this room who respond to Jesus by wanting to, seeing him as a rival king, wanting to stamp him out. But there may be those of us in this room who, who want a sentimental view of Jesus. We don't want him to disturb our status quo. We don't want him to disturb our comfortable life. We like Jesus in the manger. We're not so sure. We like Jesus preaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Or, or maybe some of us in this room are like the religious leaders. Amazingly, we might have an orthodox theology. We might be able to quote the scriptures. We know the Bible. We know the plot line. We've hung around church a long time. But perhaps we're spiritually cold, not willing to leave our comfort to go see this one. And Matthew chapter 2 really is, really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, or maybe maybe our response this morning and that's my prayer for us our response during this season and my response dur- our response during every season is that of worship as we come into this space for the singular reason to adore Jesus and love Jesus and admire Jesus but ultimately we worship him because we know he is God come in the flesh it is true Whatever we offer, whatever we offer God, oh, he gives us far more. And so maybe this morning you need to give him your life. I want you to understand, you give him your life and he gives you real life. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. You give him your hurt, he'll give you his healing. Today, if you have a need we can help you with, come as we stand as we sing this song.